right, all right. I don't want everybody else to feel bad, but I want you guys to know that this really is my favorite part of the service, hanging out with you little kiddos. Can we turn me down just a little bit? I don't like hearing myself. Well, we're going to pray together, and then we're going to dive into God's Word. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for the gift of this morning and this day when we get to gather together as your body and your bride, the family of God, your church, that we get to lift our voices in song and praise and thanksgiving, saying that we love you, that we abandon ourselves and our lives and our everything unto you. And we pray, Lord, that where we're off, where our understanding of you and our understanding of the word, that you would provide correction. Because, God, we don't want to miss it. We don't want to misunderstand or have wrong ideas. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth because that's how much we love you and desire to be with you for all eternity. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, there is a book in the Bible called Acts. Anybody ever heard of the book of Acts? Y'all have heard of it? Well, there's a chapter in the book of Acts, chapter 17. And in this chapter 17, it's talking about how angry people get when you challenge their traditions. Do you guys have any traditions in your family? What's a tradition that maybe somebody has? What's a tradition? Well, it's not just your family. What's a tradition, like Christmas isn't just your family. What's a tradition that your family has? Yeah. You bake cookies for Santa. That's cool. What else? It doesn't just have to be about Christmas. It could be about anything. Anybody got a tradition? You do what? They get together every year, like a family reunion kind of thing. Very cool. Anybody else? You already spoke. What's that? A family movie. Sometimes you like guys, you do family nights. Well, that's cool. Well, virtually every family has some kind of tradition. You may not even know that it's a tradition, that like you eat dinner at a certain time, that on Sundays after church, sometimes people go to a certain restaurant. We've got all kinds of traditions. And there's nothing wrong with traditions unless those traditions, we place them above our understanding and our worship of King Jesus, right? Well, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, he went to this place called Thessalonica. In the Bible, there's a book that he writes to the Thessalonians. That's the people in Thessalonica. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says that when he went there, that the people didn't like what he had to say. And you know why they didn't like what Paul had to say? No? Yes? You guys aren't with me? What? That's right. He challenged their traditions. Good job. Did y'all hear that? Paul challenged their traditions, and he came along and he said, but if you go into the Word and you hear what the Word has to say, then you're going to see that Jesus Christ really is our King, our Creator, eternally God. And you know how they responded? They wanted to kill Him. They drove Him out of the city. And then later in chapter 17, it says that he went to another place. He went to a different city, 
And in verse 10, it says, As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue. That was the place where they would teach and share the word. It wasn't the temple. It's a little bit different. It was uh, sort of like a satellite of the temple. So he went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here, the Berean Jews, were of more noble character than the ones in Thessalonica. And do you know why? Why do you think the people in Berea were of more noble character than the people in Thessalonica? Why? Is it because they didn't have any traditions? No. It's because when Paul taught and he challenged their traditions, what did they do? Well, I'll read and I'll tell you. You're exactly right. I'm going to tell you what they did. It says the people were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with eagerness, that's part A, and they examined the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul said were true. See, if someone just receives what a teacher has to say, they say, oh, that sounds really good. I'm going to go with that. You know what ends up happening? People end up getting all kinds of wonky ideas and theologies and cults. All kinds of crazy stuff happens. And then you get pastors standing in churches, dancing around, holding snakes in their hands, and doing all kinds of weird stuff. Where does it say that in Scripture? It doesn't. And then if someone comes along and says, I'm going to challenge that, what do they do? They run them out of town because they love their traditions more than they love the Word of God. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy, but you know what? It's even true in this church right here. There are things that when Pastor Kevin preaches that people get angry, and there have been people who have left our church because they love their traditions more than they love the Word of God. So I want you to think today as you're listening to Pastor Kevin when he's preaching, and if something bothers you, if something makes you a little upset or if something makes you a little bit angry, maybe you even think it's not right. Instead of just getting angry and leaving, as some people do, what you should do is like those people in Acts 17, the ones who were more noble than the others, is that they received the message eagerly with great anticipation. But they didn't just leave it there. They also did what? They searched the Scriptures daily, daily, to see if what the teacher, Paul, said was true. See, you can't go off of what Pastor Kevin tells you. You can't go off of what your mom and your dad tell you. You can't go off of what somebody on TV tells you. And you can't say, I don't love you anymore, Jesus, because I heard somebody say this, or I saw somebody do that, and I don't like that. And that's not who I want to be. I don't want to be a part of that. Go into God's Word That's your responsibility. That's your responsibility to go in and search the Scriptures to see what Jesus has to say about himself and whether or not somebody who's teaching is telling the truth or, as Scripture says, are they just tickling your ears to tell you what you want to hear? Okay? Can you guys do that? Awesome. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that not just these little kiddos here, but that everyone present and everyone who hears this message out on the internet throughout the globe, that they wouldn't adhere to traditions, that they wouldn't love them more than they love you, 
that they would love you as the eternal word, and that they would love the word you revealed in Scripture. We love you. We pray that your Spirit would open our hearts, that we would be born again by the Spirit and the truth and the washing of your word. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to our world, amen. This Advent season, Advent, it's celebration of the coming of the Christ. That He came once as a baby born of the Virgin Mary to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 7. The virgin will be with child, and you will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus is coming again. Scripture tells us not to bring salvation. He's already done that, the cross, but to come for those who are eagerly awaiting him. Is that you? Are you eagerly awaiting the Savior, the King, the Creator? If you've been in church more than a couple of times, you've probably met some of these people. It's not pretty. There's three varieties. The first one, the curmudgeon. They can't really hide who they are because you just see it. You just see them. They're sitting there oftentimes in the pews in the same place every Sunday. And they've got that face, just like that one right there. Walker said, me. I'm just messing with you. The curmudgeon, it's the joyless, rigid, self-appointed church police silently judging all of you as being less than, inadequate. You're not there yet, brother. Someday, someday you might be me. I hope not. I desperately hope I never get there. That's not the only variety. There's another variety in churches that you may have run into. They're the semantic, I call them, the spiritually lethargic individual. You start to have a a dialogue with them about Scripture, and they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need to know about when Jesus is coming again, about the millennial kingdom, if it's real or if it's metaphor. I don't need to know what all about revelation is. It's all kind of crazy and wonky. Don't confuse me with all the truth of Scripture. I know what I believe because that's how I was raised. They're spiritually lazy, lethargic. Those are the people who don't want to be tested. They don't want to sharpen iron with iron. When service is over, they quickly make an escape out the door in order to get to brunch instead of sitting around and enjoying fellowship. They don't want the Holy Spirit to provide correction. You say tomato, I say tomato. It's all the same, Pastor. The semantic. But probably the most common, at least in this part of the world, geographically speaking in the South, and I don't have anything against Southerners, so don't get mad at me because I am one. I've lived here almost my whole life. You say, well, not your whole life. You came from up north. You're a Yankee. You'll never be a Southerner. 
Well, if this is the definition of a Southerner, the person, very polite in their defiance and rejection, right? Very polite and defiant in their rejection. Oh, bless your heart. Bless your heart when what they're really saying is, you're an idiot. But they're doing it in a polite way, so it makes it okay. That's us in the South, right? That's us. And you'll find those people in churches all over. Bless your heart, Pastor. Bless your heart. That's not what the Word says. You must be new. You must be new. Bless your heart. You're wrong, and I've already made up my mind. Whether it's the Southerner and their polite religion, the semantic and their spiritual laziness, whether it's the curmudgeon and their joyless, prickly exterior, the common denominator for all of them is tradition, personal preference, the sacred cows, the golden calves, firmly planting them outside the kingdom of God. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter. Oh, I will. I'm confident. I asked Jesus into my heart when I was still a zygote inside my mama. I was baptized in her womb. But you'll never know it because I'm joyless and I'm angry. I don't participate. I'm not part of the body of Christ. I can celebrate and I can worship from home. I can do everything. I don't need you people. I don't need you, except the problem is, is that doesn't line up with God's Word. But, as Paul experienced in Acts 17, don't question people's traditions unless you're ready to get run off. From the day I arrived here at Poetry, I've been ready to get run off. Because the truth of this book, the Word of God, is a reflection of the eternal Word of God, our King. And I care less about what man thinks of me than my Creator. And so if it's offensive to you what it is that I have to say this morning, I'm not sorry. I'm not See, because I'm accountable to the eternal king, and when I stand before him, I'm not going to say, well, I just wanted to make Tanya feel good. I just didn't want to step on Mike's toes. I'm going to say, Jesus, I preached the truth as faithfully as I possibly could, and if I made a mistake, God, I'm sorry, but I followed your spirit. See, the problem is, is that sometimes we get off target. We don't mean to. Not always. We don't always mean to get off target. So I'm not standing up here on my holy horse. Because there have been times when I've been wrong. When my wife has come to me and said, Kevin, I don't know that that's accurate. When a friend or a member of the church has said, Pastor, I think the way that not necessarily you preach, but the way that you behave doesn't reflect the word of God. And I said, I'm sorry. And I repent. And I'm going to go and I'm going to make it right as a member, as a leader, the head of this body, I'm going to make it right. Off target. What if by our assumptions, what if by our traditions, our golden calves, what if just by a smidge, 
just by the tiniest little bit, we're off. Wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know? Some of us say yes, and others say yes with their mouths, but in their hearts, no. They say, how bad could it possibly be? What about the heart surgeon that's operating on your baby? How bad could it possibly be? How bad could it possibly be? What about the engineer, right? The engineer who's building a bridge or a 200-story building that your loved one is going to work on on the top floor. How bad could it be to be off just a smidge? What about the shuttle pilot who's on his way to Mars? The man sitting in the command and control, his calculations were off by just a smidge. And he rockets off into the darkness of space, never to return. Or maybe on the way home, they were off by just a smidge. And they skip off the atmosphere, burn up, crash and die, just a smidge. If it's a big deal for those things that are passing, where rust destroys and moths eat away, what about our relationship with an eternal Savior? a righteous and holy God who doesn't accept 99.9% okay. It's 100% righteousness or it's nothing. That's why we needed Christ. Not morality, not ethics, not the traditions of men. We needed Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. See, the thing is that Scripture is rife with people who are off by a smidge, who abhorred correction. And it wasn't the outsiders, it wasn't those people way over there. All throughout Scripture, what we see time and time and time again is it's the insiders, the people of God, those who carried the Word, who missed it grossly. Just read Judges 21-25. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. What about the priests like Aaron? What about his sons, Nadab and Abihu, bringing strange fire? What about Eli and his sons taking the best portions that were brought for God? What about Israel's kings and the idols and the high places and the worship, even sacrificing their own children, their own children? In Jesus' day, the insiders, they were the religious types. They looked like the people of Poetry Baptist Church. Every Sunday in synagogue, Saturday, They looked the part. They were clean on the outside, filthy on the inside. They were the ones judging their righteousness, not by God's holy and perfect standard, but by looking around and saying, I'm better than that guy. I got it better than that guy. At least I'm not that guy. You don't believe me? Matthew 3 Verse 9, John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, Don't presume to say we have Abraham our father. See, they thought because of their genealogy 
if I can trace it back to one of the 12 patriarchs, I'm in. I can do some other stuff, but just by my genealogy, just by the fact that I'm a Jew, I'm in. I'm a child of Abraham. And John the Baptist said, "Uh uh-uh. And he said it out of love. See, because he was the forerunner of Christ and he didn't want people to go off into eternity spending it separated from God based on bad assumptions. Luke 18.11, the Pharisee and the tax collector, thank you, God, that I'm not like fill in the blank, this sinner, this tax collector. Matthew 19.22, the rich young ruler What is it that I need to do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? Well, let's look at it. I've done all those. I've done all those since I was two. I got it down, Jesus. Where's my badge? Where's my button? What do I get? Jesus said, well, there's just one thing. There's just one thing that you're lacking. What is it? Just sell everything that you've got, and then see Some people will say, oh, that means that you can't be wealthy and be a Christian. It's a lie. You can be wealthy and be a Christian. I know some. And they are the most generous givers in the world because God has blessed them, and from that blessing, they choose to take that blessing and pass it on in obedience to God. It doesn't mean that you have to be a monk and go live in a cave. It means, quite simply, that there's nothing Nothing that can take place, priority, and primacy over God. Nothing. I know a lot of poor people who don't want anything to do with Jesus. So it's not about the money. See, the people, they didn't want correction. A lot of people don't want it. They just want the golden ticket to heaven. What must I do? What's the secret formula See, if you just give me a list of things to check off, I can do those things. Jesus said to that rich young ruler, it's not about the list. It's about the condition of your heart and whether or not you're willing to humble yourself completely before your creator. And there's nothing that substitutes that. Nothing. Not all the mission trips, not all the times at church. Nothing. Nothing. It doesn't matter what your creed is or whether you proclaim to be an inerrantist. It doesn't matter your view of Scripture. It matters whether or not it plays out in the reality of your life. Are you considering others superior to yourself? Well, I don't know about that, Pastor. That seems a bit extreme. That's what Jesus said. They don't want correction, just the golden ticket. They want the fullness of Jesus, friends with benefits. I want what you got, Jesus, but I just don't want you. Don't want transformation. In those days, in Jesus' days, the Jews wanted military superiority. When Jesus offered correction, their response was, crucify him. See, when we don't hear what we want to hear, what we do today is we say, I'm going to go to another church. I don't like that Pastor Kevin guy. I'm going to pick up and I'm going to go somewhere else where 
They make me feel good and warm and fuzzy inside. You can find that. I guarantee it. But is that your desire? Or would you rather hear the truth of God's word? And maybe you're off by a smidge. And will you, like many people in the Bible, Moses and David being two of them, say, teach me, Lord. Teach me that I may know you. Because that's my desire. I want to glorify you with every breath, every bit of my life. That's my life's desire and goal. You ever heard the name Eugene? I bring that up. It might not seem like it fits in well, but it ties in with Acts chapter 17. And if you've got a Bible, it's what I shared with the little kids. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, and it reads these, and it's referring to the Berean Jews, were more eugenesteroi from the Greek. It's where we get the name Eugene. It means noble-minded. The Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? Two things. They received the message with great eagerness. And they examined the Scriptures every day. You can examine the Scriptures and not receive the Word, and you're lost. You can receive the word and not examine the scriptures to see whether or not it's true, and you're lost. It's got to be both of those things. Do you want to be noble-minded? Do you want to be a curmudgeon? Do you want to be a semantic? Do you want to be the polite and rebellious southerner? Oh, bless your heart, pastor. Or do you want to be a Eugene? I'm going to receive the word, and then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to see whether or not the things that Pastor Kevin, or the message I heard online, or what I heard at BSF, or what I heard taught over here or over there, what my friend said, I'm going to examine the scriptures, not one verse, but having a comprehensive biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation. Not one verse taken out of context. See, that's how cults are formed. They major on the minors, and they minor on the majors. Praise. All of that was just preparatory. I'm not even at the sermon yet. How do you feel? Are you with me? It's all just preparation because what we're talking about today is praise. And the one place, the one thing in all my years of ministry, all my years of preaching... The one place that I've gotten the most pushback from is on the biblical concept of praise. I've stood here in this pulpit and I've told people praise is always two things. And if you don't meet those two criteria, it's not praise. It doesn't mean that it's sin. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean that it's evil. It just means that it's not praise. Semantics, pastor. There you go. I caught you. It's always public, and it's always vocal. Well, I don't know about that, Pastor. I can praise Jesus at home in my closet. Can you? Because that's not what this book says. This book doesn't say that you can praise God in the privacy of your prayer closet. 
You can pray, you can worship, you can glorify, you can sing. You can do a lot of things by yourself. And what I found as I examined, and I was talking to someone this week, and I was really wondering, why is it that praise is such an area of pushback? Why? And as I was praying, and as I was studying, and I was asking God to teach me, Lord, the one thing that kept bubbling up again and again is the idea, the concept that people don't like. Don't tell me what I can't do, Pastor. You can't praise Jesus on your own. Why? What about, what about the good old song, Blessed Assurance? Y'all ever sang that one? You ever sang Blessed Assurance? Sing it with me. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, washed in his blood. See, the part where we get lost, it says, praising my Savior all the day long. And I asked Connor this morning, I said, Connor, do you think anyone could do that? And he said, no, no, Dad, nobody can do that. And I said, why? And he said, because it's always public and it's always vocal. Are you always in public? But see, is the good Baptist in you, you say, Pastor, you're wrong because that song, Blessed Assurance, is near and dear to my heart and I'm about to pull out on you. Draw down. See, because my tradition is more important than the truth of God's word. Why? Why? You're not going to find blessed assurance in Scripture. A guy wrote that. I'm not saying it's bad, but if you're going to get your theology from hymns, you got to do what those Berean Jews did. you got to go back into Scripture and say, and then if you ask somebody, hey, what does this word mean? I don't know. Sin and error pining. What does pining mean? I don't know, but I sing it every Christmas. In sin and error pining till he appears. What does pining mean? I don't know. I already told you that. I don't know what pining means. It means grieving, broken, and lost in our sin. We're singing that. We don't even know what the words mean. And then we construct a theology around stuff that we don't know and we don't understand. And then we never sit down with God's word and say, teach me, Lord. Instruct my heart. Remove the dross and the garbage and the sin from my life. Purify me. Lord Jesus, transform me into your image. I want to be like you, righteous, holy, and perfect. And the only way that that happens is I've been baptized with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. He must increase, I must diminish. We say it. We've got the words, just like the Pharisees, just like the religious leaders. They had it all memorized. They could debate and argue all day long. And then when Messiah the risen king stood before them and he said, don't you get it? I'm him. They said, blasphemer, crucify him, 
crucify him. Don't change, don't change my traditions. Don't, don't rock the boat, Jesus. Don't mess up the status quo. I got a good thing going. I'm in charge. I'm the top dog. I'm the high priest. People walk around me and they cower before me. I think it's a pretty good gig. I'm the head pastor of a church. You better step back. You know what that means? It means that I'm the lead servant. And if you don't see me acting that way, then call me out. I'm not the CEO of this church, and Jesus isn't the CEO of his bride and his body. The night that he was betrayed, what did he do? He took off his outer garments, and he hiked the stuff up, and he got a big basin, and he walked around, and he washed his disciples' nasty, ugly, corn-chip-smelling, funky, fungus-infested toes and feet. Disgusting, right? Jesus couldn't have gotten any lower until he went to the cross. And we say it was my sin that held him there. You know what? It wasn't our sin because we're not in charge. It wasn't our sin that held him there. It was his love for us, and it was his desire to glorify the Father. We are not in charge. We are not the epicenter of all things. You are not the center of the universe. And that's the problem. See, when we talk about praise, people don't like the idea Come back. Don't tell me what I can't do. Don't tell me what I can't do. I can tell you that Noah couldn't do it. He couldn't. Abraham couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. King David couldn't do it. Paul couldn't. Billy Graham couldn't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. None of us. Not even Jesus. We can look in Scripture and we can say that he went off by himself to pray. But it doesn't ever say he went off to praise. Praise. But don't take my word for it. One of the greatest books in all of Scripture, the one that's the most overflowing with the concept of praise, is the book of Psalms. It's a book of praise. Do you know what the book of Psalms is for? Is it for you to go in your prayer closet? Is it for you to sit by yourself when you go on vacation somewhere and you're off alone and you want to sit there? Is that what the book of Psalms is about? No. You can use it that way, and it's not sin. Like I said, it's not bad. It's not evil. But what the book of Psalms was designed for was corporate congregational worship. I'm going to read some passages from Psalms. These aren't all of them. I think there's something like 180 references to praise in the book of Psalms. Psalms 6-5. And I want you to listen and see if you hear what the common thread. 6-5. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? See, if you're dead, you're by yourself and you're separated from everyone. Therefore, you can't... Oh, come on, everybody. If you're dead and you're separated from everyone, your mouth is shut, the one thing that you can't do is, thank you, man. Psalm 911, 
Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what He has done. I'm going to proclaim among the nations, right? I'm going out and I'm standing before the foreign countries and I'm praising God. It's public and it's vocal. Therefore, it's praise. If I got in the middle of the nations and I said, I'm going to prayer walk. Is that bad? Is it evil? No, but it's not praise. It's not praise until it's public and it's vocal. Psalm 9.14, that I may declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion. Do you know what the gates were? The gates. The gates of Zion. It's the epicenter, the business central. It's the hub of the city. It's where everyone is. If you want someone to hear your case, if you're going to make a transaction, you go to the gates. There's people there. It's public, and when you get there, among your own people, the Jews, you're going to praise his name. Y'all are coming along pretty good. Psalm 1849, therefore I will praise you. I will, not I am, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I'm not there yet, I'm not among the nations. I've got to get there, but I will praise you. I will sing the praises of your name. See, there's an audience needed. If you do it among the nations, the pagans, the foreigners, the people who aren't the people of God, it becomes evangelism. You're sharing the light and the truth of God in Israel failed miserably. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. I will proclaim your name to my people in the assembly. I'll do it in the assembly when I'm with my people. I can't do it when I'm hiding in a cave because Saul wants to kill me. I'm by myself and I can't praise you. God, I love you and I desire to do that, but I can't praise you. Psalm 150, praise. If you read it, where are we going to do it? We're going to do it in his sanctuary, in the heavens. Why? Because of God's acts of power, his surpassing greatness, his covenant fidelity. How do you do it? When you're going to praise, what do you bring with you? What do you bring with you? Come on, guys. You bring your voices, and what else can you bring? You bring your friends and you bring your instruments. He says, bring the trumpets, bring the harp, bring the lyre. Not the guy who doesn't tell the truth, but the musical instrument, the lyre. We don't need the lyres. Not that kind. At least Connor thought it was funny. Thanks, buddy. See, there's lots of people required. You're not the guy that's sitting there with a drum on the front and playing the guitar and you're playing something under the accordion under your arm. It's not that guy. It's that you've got a lot of people. you got a lot of people, and you bring your voices, and you're in an audience, and that's when you get to praise. Psalm 42, I think this paints the most beautiful and clearest picture. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you. David is separated from the people of God. And he said in the same way that in the heat of the day that that deer that's been looking for water and he's dying of thirst and how he pants and longs, see, he's desperately dependent. 
He's thirsting for you, God. That's how David felt in his heart. As the deer pants for water, that's how my soul longs for you, Jesus. That's how my soul longs for you. But see, I can't do it how I used to go to the house of God. That's where I used to go, but I'm not there now. And I miss it. I miss my brothers and sisters and all of their wonkiness and all of their craziness and all of their brokenness because I'm right there with you, as you've probably already experienced this morning. How I long to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of praise, with shouts of praise among the festive multitude. See, it's not the people who are... Not the curmudgeon. But the people who are the festive multitude. The people who aren't afraid to put their hand up and say, Praise God! We're Baptists. We don't do that. Well, I wish that you would. I wish that you would instead of being stuffy and dry and sitting there. Hmm. Allow the Spirit to get a hold of you. Let it break out and break free. Praise Him with everything that you've got. Verse 11, so dejected. Why so much turmoil? I'm separated from the people of God. I can't praise you, but there's hope. I will be reunited, and I will praise Him yet. I will. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way? Maybe when COVID hit, I felt that way. I told people that I absolutely hated being separated from my church family. The weirdest thing that I've ever done in the world was to record messages to an empty room, to talk to nobody, to preach to walls. And I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to do it again. I don't care where COVID goes. I don't care what happens. I'm never preaching to an empty room ever again. Is he your Savior? Is he your God? My pastoral concern is that at the heart of this aversion, this repulsion to the idea of not being able to praise by yourself is one thing, self-worship. I don't think people are against the idea of being able to pray and to glorify, but when you tell somebody you can't do something on your own, why do they get so bent out of shape? Even when you tell them from the Word, I don't think that's right, Pastor. Why? Why the aversion? Because I can do anything. I can do anything by myself. I don't need you, and I don't need you, but that doesn't line up with Scripture. We have a slide. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Oswald Chambers, a man who was a seminary teacher and a Christian that, golly, I just wish that I had met him. He lived many years before I was born, and he died. And he was a man who gave his life for men that were coming home from the battlefield, and he didn't want to occupy an operating table. And though his appendix had ruptured, and he knew that he needed to be operated on, he said, nope take care of those guys first. And he died. And anybody that can do that, I'm going to listen to what they have to say. And early on as a Christian, when I was in my mid-30s, a friend gave me this book, My Utmost for His Highest. 
and I'm not saying I agree with everything that Oswald Chambers has to say. It's not a, it's not a substitute for Scripture, but it's a man who is dearly in love with Jesus, and he wrote down his thoughts. And there were times where I didn't have a mentor, I didn't have someone to teach me, and I sat down with Oswald, and I felt like I had a friend. I felt like I had somebody who loved Jesus as much as I did. And I learned stuff from him. And one of the things that I learned is a quote, our individuality must be yielded to God so that the spiritual life may be brought forth into fellowship with him. Individuality contends and counterfeits spirituality, just as lust counterfeits love. God designed human nature for himself, but individuality corrupts the human nature for its own purposes. How do you respond to that? I don't know, Oswald. I don't know if I agree with that. Is that how the Berean Jews responded? Or did they receive it and then go back into God's Word to see if what Oswald had to say was true? See, on this idea of individualism, I was studying this week, and I came to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, a verse that many of you have heard, many of you have read, many of you have studied, memorized, recited over and over and over again. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so also death passed on to all because all sinned, Romans 5.12. And the word that jumped out to me, can you figure out what it is? One. One. See, in Genesis 2.15, God told Adam that his ministry was two words in Hebrew, abad and shamar. Abad means to minister, to serve. So your wife, Eve, I haven't created her yet, but before she gets here, I want you to know this is what I want you to do. Consider others more important than yourself. You've got two things that you need to do. Abad, minister, serve her, not weed eat the garden, not make sure that the grass is up to homeowners association standards. It's to minister to your bride. And Shamar, to watch over, to guard, and to protect. And somewhere along the line, Adam lost interest. Sin entered the world through one man. When we get to Genesis chapter 3, what happens? The serpent comes along, and he's having a dialogue with Eve, and he's saying, Evie, Evie, baby, here's the problem with God. He's, uh, he's stifling your creativity, babe. He wants you to be independent. That's the thing, yes, I didn't, you didn't know this, but Satan has a little bit of a Jersey accent. God, he's stifling, he's petty, in fact. He knows that you will become like God. If you eat that fruit over there, you will become like God. Scripture goes on to tell us that Eve explored, she looked, and she saw how good that fruit was. Mm, 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 mm. Advertising, man, Satan sold it, didn't he? She took some of that fruit and she ate it. And then we find out it wasn't that Adam wasn't around. It wasn't that Satan snuck in under the cover of darkness. I'm going to get to her when Adam's not here. He was standing right there, right there. 
says that she ate some and she gave it to her husband who was there with her and he ate some too. Have you ever been around someone physically close, geographically close, but worlds apart? That describes Adam's relationship with his wife. We don't know how long between God creating her and Genesis 3 happened, but Adam had had it up to here. Oh my goodness. Seriously? I'm done with the honeydews. I'm done with the questions. I'm done. I say all the right things. Yes, dear. But see, I'm not really with her. I'm not really ministering to her. I'm not really serving her. I'm not really guarding and protecting her. I'm looking out for number one. I'm neglecting what God said, my relationship with her, and my relationship with God. Therefore, we always focus in on, well, Eve's the one that ate. It should have been her. She should be the one to blame. Well, Adam, he dropped the ball. He wasn't doing his job. It's not about who it entered the world through. It's about entering through one. They were divided. They were individuals. I've got my aspirations, and you've got yours. I'm okay, you're okay. Coexist, let's everybody do our own thing. But the problem is, is that's not what God has to say. I'm your creator. And you were created just like God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Eternally, Trinity, community. And when we start to act like individuals, and individuality becomes our golden calf, It becomes the most important thing. It's our tradition. Hey, where are you going to college? Where do you work? What do you do? What do you drive? Who cares? Do you love Jesus Christ, our creator, the eternal son, with all your heart or not? Do you? See, because if you do, then within the context of the body and the bride of Christ, you are serving. Take it all, God. I wish you'd give me more energy. I wish you'd give me more love, more grace, more peace. No, I just listen at home. It's the same. It's basically the same thing. I just get in my prayer closet and I say, Who are you serving? Myself. That's the problem. Praise. God ordained it that in order to praise him, we would need to die to self. Autonomy would have to go. Our personal preferences would have to go. You ever been part of a church where people said, I don't, I don't like you. I don't, like, I don't like what color you painted the walls. I'm leaving. You ever been part of a church where people, the petty stuff, the great, I call it the great grape juice controversy. As Baptists, we love it, right? Oh, we can't have wine for the Lord's Supper. Why not? Jesus never drank wine. Huh? He didn't? See, as Baptists, oftentimes we worship our traditions. Well, what about the person that's the alcoholic? That's fine. But don't turn that into a legalistic point. If somebody wants to have wine for the Lord's Supper, bring your own flask. I know that probably offends many of you, but I don't care. 
See, I would rather that we're together in harmony, worshiping Jesus, than someone getting offended. I can't believe the pastor said it's okay to have wine. It's okay to have wine. And it's okay to have grape juice. I've celebrated the Lord's Supper where we didn't have either one. And they broke out apple juice and they said in their home because their elderly mother was bedridden, is this okay? I said, it sure is. See, because if we're going to glorify Jesus with the bread and the juice, it doesn't matter what it is. Well, I don't know. Is that really the Lord's Supper? Is it really the Lord's Supper? Is it? See, when Jesus sat down on the road to Emmaus and he revealed himself to those two guys and he broke bread with them, if you're with Jesus, it is the Lord's Supper. Isn't it? Oh, I don't know, Jesus. I don't know if I can celebrate this with you. You've got a glass of wine there. Our traditions. We need to get rid of autonomy and personal preferences and individualism. As Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone, 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 say it with me, if anyone should come after me, what do they got to do? Deny self, pick up your cross, and follow me. But what do we do instead? Oh, I'm a follower. I'm a follower, but I'm not going to deny myself. Pick up my cross. That sounds very inconvenient. That sounds incredibly inconvenient, Pastor. I just don't know. I'll just get in my prayer closet, Jesus. Our identity resides exclusively in him, not in our polite Sunday, identi- Sunday identity. That was a tough one to say. Not in our polite Sunday identity. Are you the same person that you're putting on a face today that you'll be tomorrow with your children and on Tuesday with your spouse in the same way that you are with your employer or with your employees? Are you the same person? Are you? Or is this your Sunday best? Jesus looked at those people that were the religious Sunday types, and he said, you're hypocrites. You're clean on the outside, but on the inside, your cup is filthy. Jesus had no regard for them, and neither do I. Is your identity as a born-again believer? Have you been crucified with Christ? Do you no longer live, but Christ lives in you? Are you an intimate member of the eternal community, his body, his bride, the church? Is Jesus your king? Praise is always public, and it's always vocal. I wonder if we took... Jesus seriously, what would the church look like? I wonder if we took Jesus, the word, if we took it seriously, what would, what would it look like? This Advent season, we're going to have lots of people come and visit us on Christmas Eve at 530, and I hope that you're here. I hope that it's standing room only. I hope that it overflows and we have chairs in the gym and people come. But you know what? We're not doing a live nativity. It's not sin. 
but we're not here to entertain people. We're not going to sing secular songs like Jingle Bells and Santa Claus is Coming to Town. We're going to sing hymns, Christmas hymns, that are rich in theology. And they talk about Emmanuel, talk about sin and error pining, that we're grieving and brokenhearted because of our separation and our rejection of our Savior. And we desire to be born again by the Spirit, not by being good people, not by saying, I'm sorry, Jesus, I'm going to repent. That doesn't get us there. It's essential and it's mandatory, but our repentance doesn't get us into heaven. Jesus' death on the cross, that's it. The way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. What if this Advent season, this Christmas, we truly celebrated, worshipped, and praised? Public and vocal. What if people who were lost, deluded, and disillusioned came into this place, and instead of having a happy Christmas and getting on with their evenings, what if their world was absolutely rocked? as they saw the people of God laying themselves low, washing other people's feet, loving and serving within the context of the bride, and coming back, wait for it, the next week. What if we compelled people so much by the way that we love and serve one another that they said, I want to get in on that. I've heard the other stuff but there's something different about those people there in poetry. Are you ready to lay yourself low? Are you ready to humble yourself before an eternal God? Not to be a religious fanatic, not to be someone who looks the part, but someone who's truly born again by the Spirit of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, comes to the Father but through Him. Praise. It's always public, and it's always vocal. I'm going to finish with Revelation 19. I want to give you a picture of what eternity is going to look like. And if what we do here doesn't look like what's going to happen then, I wonder why not. I wonder why not. Because if this is what you're longing for as a deer pants for the water, if this is what you're longing for in eternity, but it's not what you're longing for and, and making a reality in the here and the now, I wonder why. Is it just lip service? Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6. John says, Then I heard something like a voice of a vast multitude like a sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah! That word hallelujah means praise God. Hallel, praise. Hallelujah, Yahweh. Praise God, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. See, it's a bride. He's not redeeming a bunch of individuals to carry on into eternity as individuals. He's redeeming us into one body, one bride, one church for all eternity. 
I like you guys, but I don't want to spend eternity with you. Then you're not going to be there. Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. Are you prepared? Is it because you asked Jesus into your heart when you were two? Is it because you did a magical water ceremony up here? Maybe even I did it for you. Is that where your hope is? Or is all your hope in Jesus, the King, the Creator? She was given fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Are we submitting ourselves to the Word? Are we submitting ourselves to the Word? Does the idea of praise offend you? Maybe it's because your tradition, your idol, your golden calf is your individuality. How will you respond? During this time of response, maybe for you it's just to come forward and to pray. There's nothing special about coming up here except that it's public. Instead of doing it in the privacy of your pew, and if you're elderly and you have a hard time getting up and getting down, that's fine. There's nothing magical about it. Don't do what Pastor Kevin wants you to do. We're a spirit-led church. So before you act, before you move, get still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him and ask the Spirit to lead and respond. Respond. Respond.